0: Welcome to Simply by Grace, a podcast of Grace Life Ministries, with founder and director Dr. Charlie Bing. This podcast and other helpful resources can be found at our website, gracelife.org. Now, here's Dr. Bing.
1: Yesterday I said there was disadvantages to speaking right after lunch, and there's also disadvantages to speaking right before lunch. I realize that. I'll do my best to get us out on time. Uh, because I am reminded of the story of the second grader who was asked to do a report, as his class was, on famous people from the past. And uh, people chose Abraham Lincoln and uh, everything from Moses, George Washington Carver. He chose to do his report on Socrates. He got up
0: to read his report, and it was very simple. Socrates was a philosopher. He talked too much.
1: They poisoned him. So, keeping in mind that lunch is uh, next on the agenda, we'll try to get you out on time. <clears throat> the question before us today is how to disciple believers in grace, and, or how to disciple believers in general. And this is a question, one of the kinds of questions you ask two pastors and you get three views. Um, sometimes simple questions tend to do that. Uh, You ask the question, uh, why did the chicken cross the road? It depends on the background, experience of the people who answer the question. It's going to be different. You ask Pat Buchanan, he's going to say, to steal a job from decent, hardworking Americans. Fox Mulder would say, it was a government conspiracy. Sigmund Freud, the fact that you thought that the chicken crossed the road reveals your underlying sexual insecurity. Charles Darwin, chickens over great periods of time have been naturally selected in such a way that they are now genetically dispositioned to cross roads. Jerry Seinfeld would say, why does anyone
0: cross the road? I mean, why doesn't anyone ever think to ask, what the heck was this chicken doing walking around all over the place anyway? Bill
1: Gates would say, Microsoft proudly announces Chicken 98, which incorporates road-sense technology. Chickens in the past have risked their lives, but with since they will be able to cross any road with a high degree of safety. In conjunction with Microsoft Internet, the chicken will now have full access to the information superhighway, which will empower it to make the transition into virtual road crossing, which will dominate the 21st century. (laughs) Albert Einstein might say, whether the chicken crossed the road or the road crossed the chicken depends upon your frame of reference. (laughs) The Bible would say, an angel appeared to the chicken and spake unto him. Be not afraid, thou shalt cross the road. And the chicken crossed the road, and there was much rejoicing. (laughs) Saddam Hussein, what would you say? This was an unprovoked act of aggression against the harmless baby milk factories on the other side. (laughs) Ernest Hemingway, why did the chicken cross the road?
0: To die. In the rain. Dr. Seuss, did the chicken cross the road to
1: the far side freshly mowed? Chickens ought not be so bold. Why this one was, I've not been told. And since Colonel Sanders has been referenced already, we'll end with his, I missed one? We all have different frames of reference by which we perceive things, judge things, create our models, and apply them. And that certainly is true with discipleship. We ask pastors, what is your model for discipleship? How do you disciple believers? And many of us have come up with our own way. Many of us adopted the many ways that are out there already. I was introduced to discipleship many years ago as a brand-new Christian in an odd way. Because I had kind of gotten saved outside of the church and didn't belong to a church and had no mentor. Even the person who led me to Christ left at the end of the summer. And I went just in search of more biblical information. I went in search <clears throat> at a seminar and uh, signed on to a workshop, attended that, and th- thought that it would be something I was interested, in. found out it wasn't. And, uh, but there at that workshop, I politely sat through the whole thing because I didn't want to get up and walk out in the middle of it
0: in a small classroom. But there in that workshop, at the, uh, at the very end of it, he said, that it was a pastor,
1: a local pastor said, I've been asking God for, I just want to mention this to this class, I've been asking God for something. I'm asking him for two young men that I can take through some material I've just been introduced to that will help them in growing their experience and their relationship to God. And that was all I needed. That was for me. That was worth the workshop for me. And so I stayed. And I began a relationship with this man that uh, lasted for many years, actually. We met at 5.30 in the morning, and we memorized Scripture together. We went through this Campus Crusade material, and uh, that was the basis, the foundation, the formation of my discipleship experience. I didn't mind getting up at 5.30. I didn't mind doing the work. We memorized chapters at a time. I was
0: motivated. And I find that motivation is an important ingredient in this whole discipleship formula. There is more than one
1: way to skin a cat, and there's more than one way to equip a disciple. In fact, I've come to view discipleship not just as early morning meetings or one-on-one meetings, but it's almost everything we do as ministers of the gospel. It's when we stand in the pulpit and we preach. It's when we invite people to our homes and have a meal with them. Uh, it's, it's when we uh, teach in small groups or a Sunday school class. It's the informal time, the formal time. It's even when we float them down Devil's River. At least I hope so, or it's not tax deductible. <laughs> but at some point, at some point in our discipleship process, we have to have a goal or know what we want to produce and a plan to get there. Several years ago, uh, about really about six years ago, I was asked by another ministry to develop some discipleship materials that they could use in a variety of contexts. And for a number of reasons, we needed to start from scratch, not the least of which we weren't real happy with uh, the grace orientation or the non-existence of the grace orientation in many of the discipleship materials that were out there. What this did was force me to think about a philosophy of discipleship and a model for discipleship and then a procedure to carry that out. And it was a fruitful time for me, and, and I think I came to some conclusions. Some of the things that drove my convictions, some of the things I was convinced of are the same things that you're convinced of. First of all, that <clears throat> discipleship is, and grace is needed because there's a great need for grounding in grace. Uh, grace is the only basis for real spiritual growth, I believe. If we compare it to living in a family, uh, a, a person will not prosper in a family if he or she is constantly having to question uh, their status in the family. Is this, am I really a son here? And so grace assures them that they are in the family of God, a basis for growth. Something else I was convinced of was the need for discipling believers, just for discipling in general. Uh, but especially in grace, And yes, I do say that we must fire the first shot. We must get there first before we have to undo the damage of some erroneous views that are out there. Before people really waste a lot of time, a lot of energy, a lot of their devotion in the wrong direction. My friends, I I, I heard a story just uh, about three weeks ago that uh, just broke my heart and it was very hard to believe. A man in Southern California, where a lot of times is is a very big battleground for this grace issue. And and uh, through the influence of his church and the people he was under, he questioned his salvation. And he questioned it to the point that he had to walk a very fine line to prove his salvation. He even sold his house to make restitution for things in the past, uh, which I could agree that God could even lead you to. But he was doing it for uh, completely different reasons, just to prove that he was a salvation, to make sure he had repented of every sin. And his words to me was, I wasted 10 years of my life. My friend's life is too short. The Christian life is even shorter, much too short to waste 10 years of it. We need to get there first. We need to keep people from wasting their lives, and we need to disciple them in grace. New believers, untaught believers, older believers who have not been taught the concepts of grace. I'm convinced also for a grace-oriented approach. There are many courses and materials, but frankly, I've found few that are grace-oriented or at least consistently. Now, of course, most materials start with the gospel of grace and are pretty clear about salvation. Some aren't, but some are. But it's very hard to find that consistently played out in all of its implications through the Christian's life, the discipleship process. And even if they start with grace at the front end, they'll eventually seem to backload the gospel, with works to prove salvation. And so the motivation for discipleship becomes not so much something higher like a love for God or gratitude for what he's done, but a motivation of, I've got to stay out of hell, I've got to walk this fine line and prove it with my works. And so they either omit motivation or have a wrong motivation or just assume that somewhere the disciple will pick up the motivation to continue on. A fourth need I am convinced of uh, is a need for discipleship materials to be biblical and expository, and I believe that would be a conviction of, that we all share here, not just a collection of proof texts, often out of context, without being explained. <clears throat> so I came up and would and just suggest for your uh, critique knowing that I am not infallible, and this was not delivered to me by any divine revelation, a suggested model for balanced discipleship. I think it was Stephen Covey who said, you must begin with the end in mind. We first have to ask the question, what do we want to produce? And I think that question is key, and it is answered differently by different people. Some emphasize doctrine, and perhaps the idea of a, a school of theology might be that it is, they are producing discipleships Disciples, if uh, correct doctrine is communicated. But we know it's more than that, of course. Um, Discipline needs to be a part of discipleship as well. In fact, let me suggest to you uh, a model uh, with four quadrants in it. First is for information. We know that information is important. A disciple to grow needs to know certain things, needs to know doctrine, needs to know the Bible needs to be able to synthesize it to some degree. Biblical content is necessary for understanding grace uh, and and, and applying it and all of its implications throughout the Christian life. They need to be able to think in such a way. That's why somebody can say, well, I'm saved by grace, but I know I can lose my salvation by works.
0: Well, that's inconsistent. But if we can teach them doctrinally to think and to put pieces together give
1: them the information they need, they'll have a solid foundation for discipleship. Another quadrant of this model would be transformation because we know that discipleship is not just what we know. It is what God is doing in our life and our experience and transforming us and creating our characters into more Christ-likeness. Our inner life, our authentic experience and relationship with God has to be addressed at some point. I believe that in the Gospels, Jesus gives us some characteristics of a disciple that we will, we will discuss in a minute. There has to be application. What God
0: wants us to do. This involves discipline, to do them. Things like Bible study,
1: witnessing, how to pray, how to memorize the scripture, how to worship, how to
0: serve, how to use your spiritual gifts. Some materials emphasize just the doing.
1: But here's the key one, I think, that is often, most often lacking in materials, and that is motivation. And I don't know how else to ask the question except for what does God want us to enjoy? How does God want us to benefit, or what blessing does he want to bestow on us? But frankly, I believe this is the best insurance for continuation in a fruitful Christian life. How many of you have taken people through a discipleship course taught them the right
0: disciplines, taught them the right doctrine, given them their certificate, and then it just seems to end there. (laughs) Why don't we go on? Where is the motivation to go on? Well, I think grace is the
1: answer. The grace of God that teaches us to live a godly life, that brings salvation, teaches us to live a godly life. When we understand the grace of God in all its beauty and all of its fullness, we are motivated by a reciprocal love and gratitude towards God. The grace of God that teaches the significance of rewards in our Christian lives. And we could go on and on about motivation, but that motivation is so important. That's why I spoke on it last year. I don't presume to know that you remember that. I devoted a whole message to it because this study got me thinking about what is the missing ingredient, motivation. So how do we produce something like this in these different areas? And I want to just suggest an approach that I would use. If I had to choose one book to ground someone in salvation or to to explain to them the way to be saved, it would, of course, be the Gospel of John. That's said a number of times, even at this conference. And certainly if somebody has, and and we should include something about from John to make sure that a person understands the way to eternal life. But if I had to go from there and choose a book that presents
0: how a disciple can grow in the Christian life, that takes the gospel and all of its implications of
1: grace and applies them to the Christian life, I would choose the book of Romans. The book of Romans... Does exactly that. It takes the gospel, explains the gospel, and its implications for the Christian life. And the book of Romans uses, not coincidentally,
0: I believe, the word grace more than any other book in the Bible, in the New Testament. It takes us from the
1: initial experience of justification, salvation, through sanctification, salvation, to glorification, salvation, to service which is what disciples should be doing. So I think that Romans, I found that Romans, if we're going to approach this in an expository way, would be key to showing Christians, new believers or immature believers or believers
0: who wanted to grow in grace, to help them to see the implications of grace in Christian growth. So
1: if we use the book of Romans, and you know pretty much an outline for the book of Romans, I I try to keep it real simple. You, you first of all encounter sin. We should all know what the sin nature, uh, does and the penalties for sin and how that affects us. And it forms a brilliant backdrop for the doctrine of grace that it also teaches about. So in the early chapters of Romans, we learn about sin. And then in chapters 3, verse 21 through chapter 5, we turn about, we learn about the, the condition of eternal salvation. It shows how justification is by grace through faith in Christ alone. What better verse or phrase is there than 324? We are justified freely by his grace. Can we emphasize it more than that kind of redundancy? Freely by his grace. And then chapter five provides us with that transition that not only are we justified through faith, but we, in his death, but we are saved by his life. It introduces us to the idea of a progressive sanctification by living out the life, uh, the life of Jesus Christ, living out being lived out in us, and so Romans chapter six through most of chapter eight instructs a disciple in progressive sanctification. See how the word grace is used and explained in Romans chapter six to show us that we have a new identity, that we have a new position, in chapter seven to show how the flesh. Cannot accomplish the kind of victorious life we desire, and then Romans chapter eight says it's the Holy Spirit who is in you that can accomplish a victorious life. Then we get to the end of chapter eight, and we have to deal with the issue of security, where Paul through a series of questions and assurances
0: tells Christians that there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God. There's nothing that condemn us can condemn us,
1: and there's the basis for spiritual growth, spiritual sacrifice, and
0: spiritual service. And then we come to Romans chapters 9 through 11, and we skip it because it's too theological. In all honesty, I did in my first draft. I skipped. I edited God because it's too theological, too hard to simplify
1: and a little bit too abstract and maybe not quite to the point for a disciple. And then I got to thinking, wait a minute, am I really? do I really believe in exposition of Scripture and what a book is trying to show us and what is Romans 9 through 11 trying to show us? In the big picture, friends, I think God is trying to show us that he has a big plan for each of us. And that is a plan that motivates us. It's a plan that started before time that involved his people, the Jews, and involves us now, the Gentiles, and will continue on into his eternal purposes.
0: And it helps us to see that we are a part of God's big program. That's not something we hear a lot about today. But Paul was so excited about it that by the end of, the, of Romans chapter 11, you know how he responded with worship. In doxology, oh, the depth of the rich is both, both of the wisdom and knowledge of
1: God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. Verse 34, for who has known the mind of the Lord or who has become his counselor or who has first given to him and it shall be repaid to him. For of him and through him and to him are over all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. You think disciples need to have that perspective of God and his sovereignty and his working through
0: the ages and through history? and through our lives to accomplish it? Have you listened to Christian, popular Christian music lately? There's not a song written that doesn't talk about Jesus having us in his arms.
1: And that's good. There, there are times I need to know that Jesus has me in his arms. But I also need to know that Jesus has me in his eternal purposes
0: for the world. And that gives me a sense of significance in his plan. It makes me feel important for him to include me in that. And
1: that's something that I think we would be cheating people out by hopping over Romans chapters 9 through 11. Then we come to chapter 12 through the end of the book, and we really see an emphasis on service. And that would be a natural response, wouldn't it, of gratitude and love towards our Lord. In fact, the turning point in in chapter 12 and verse 1 is, therefore, brothers, in view of God's mercy... In view of chapters 1 through 11, in view of what God's doing, has done, is doing in the world, by his grace and by his blessing, now, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. How do we do that? And he goes on to explain that we do that by serving God, by serving others, by using our gifts, chapter 13, by submitting to government and others, chapter 14, by accepting others in love, chapter 15, by bearing burdens, by
0: glorifying God, a life of service the natural result of our response to grace. So I think Romans is a key, and we would be remiss in not
1: making sure that disciples understand that because there they will encounter grace and all of its
0: implications in a systematic form.
1: But then I think it's also important for us to understand and give disciples a picture of what a disciple looks like so that they have a target themselves. And I think for that, we can go to the Gospels, where Jesus himself described, I think, the characteristics of a disciple. Now, we could find a lot of characteristics of a disciple in the Gospels. What I found it uh, most beneficial to do was to focus in on the statements where he said, if you want to be my disciple, or unless you do this, you can't be my disciple, or if you do this, you'll be my disciple indeed. And those kind of statements were a strong textual clue that he's talking about the characteristics of a disciple. And when I did that, I found seven. You may find less, you may find more. I found seven, and I'm basically going to give credit to William MacDonald for using this years ago and for even Mark Bailey, in, in, who has put it into print recently in his book. They have uh, tweaked it to their satisfaction. I've, I've done it to mine. And the first characteristic we we run across when we look at Jesus' sayings, or I think not, not first in order, but first I think in priority, would be that Jesus wants his disciples to be devoted. By that, I'm talking about this whole issue of love. He wants his disciples to have a supreme and incomparable love for Jesus
0: Christ. God knows that if he can put this in a disciple's heart, the rest will follow. There are some
1: key passages for that. Probably one of the most uh, most significant passages
0: is is the one that speaks of uh, those who follow him must love him more than father, mother, brother, sisters, wife. What is Jesus saying? In fact, in another passage, he says, unless you hate these relations, you can't be my disciple. I think he's using hate as an Aramaic expression to
1: mean that you love something less or you, you choose something before that.
0: I had a wonderful illustration of this when I talked to a young lady and her, she described the situation in the counter how she became a Christian. She became a Christian as a teenager when her mother had a terrible case of cancer. And
1: she was in her final stages laying in the hospital and they had hooked up all the tubes to her and there were so many things going into her hand. I remember she described her mother's hand it looked like a baseball mitt. It was so swollen. And her mother looks, looked so bad that when she and her father walked into the hospital room, uh, the, the father immediately exited and threw up in the hallway. And they knew it was uh, very near the end of her life and, and uh, the mother couldn't even speak, but she, at, she motioned for a pen and she took a pen and, and they gave her some paper, and she began to write, and she wrote, "I,
0: love." And her daughter just started to cry because her mother's last words were, "I love you, Jesus." And she became angry. You see how that can be perceived as hate? She became angry, but she became a Christian, because a disciple who puts
1: the love of the Lord Jesus Christ first will be an attractive. To others. Picture a man at a wedding reception in a room this size, full of people, and uh, he's talking to everyone, shaking their hands. They're having a wonderful time, good friends, good conversation. And then the door opens and a woman appears. And in the mid sentence, in the middle of a conversation, he leaves and walks towards the door and the woman.
0: Somebody at first thinks he's rude, abrupt. People say hi to him on the way out, he ignores them, right back to his bride. It's not that he hates his
1: friends and companions. It's just that he loves his wife. It just looks like hate. The disciple needs to be taught to love God in such a way that it governs our relationships towards others. Love is the highest motivation, I believe, that the scriptures offer. And it gives us an opportunity to teach things and how to express that love to God, whom we're supposed to love with all of our heart and all of our soul. And I think this is where you can teach disciplines like worship or talking to God in prayer, or making Him our priority, obeying Him, and just taking time to spend with Him, just to be in His presence. This is where we can uh, incorporate what Jody has said about being in God's presence. Disciples need to learn that. And then we need to teach them that there is a reward that comes with that, and it's the reward of, that John mentions in chapter 14 and verse 21 that has been mentioned a number of times already. I thought I had these marked, and I'm noticing, and I don't. So I'm turning to all the wrong passages. Mark chapter 14. He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. The reward of the disciple who falls in love with with the Lord is that he reveals more of himself to us. Another characteristic of a disciple I find in the Gospels
0: is obedience, God wants his disciples to be obedient, to continue in his word. A disciple has to be familiar with the word. We know that. He has to be taught the word, what the Bible teaches, what the, the principles in the Bible, it's how to apply it to life. A key passage,
1: of course, is John 8, 31. Unless you continue or remain in the word, you cannot be my, you are, if, you, if you continue and remain in the word, you are my disciples indeed. He's talking about that close relationship of going on in God's word, living in obedience to it, living under its authority. Here's a good opportunity to teach the disciplines of Bible study, how to read the Bible, how to study the Bible, how to apply
0: the Bible. And what's the reward for that? It's right there in that passage. You'll be free indeed. Those who follow the word of God and all of its
1: wisdom and truth will be free indeed. How contrary to the opinion of most people that if I find the Bible,
0: my life is going to be confined and narrow. That's not the way God sees it. What if a train said, hey, I want to be free. I'm going to leave the track. Not going to go very far, is it? God says, this is the way to freedom. This is the way to freedom
1: from guilt, from fear, freedom from worry. Freedom from insignificance,
0: freedom from lack of purpose, freedom from legalism, freedom from sin, and when you sin, the freedom of forgiveness again. God wants his disciples to be obedient, trained up in the word, free in
1: the truth as a reward. And then he wants his disciples to be selfless. In this third characteristic, I think God wants his disciples to deny their own desires in order to do God's will. We looked at nine. Luke chapter 9, verse 23,
0: yesterday. Deny yourselves, he said. Deny your own selfish desires. Be willing to forsake sin, selfishness, not just sin and selfishness. Be willing to forsake your rights and your wants in order to do God's will. Be willing to say no to yourself and yes to God. That's what a new relationship requires. When you got married, if you are, you had to be willing to make a new priority of relationship
1: and say no to your old family at times or put them second. Say no to old friends and old habits and the way you use your time.
0: It meant meant that you gave a new preference to your new relation, husband or wife. The selfless disciple is promised a rich experience in this life and in the future kingdom.
1: In that very passage, he talks about finding your life, the kind of life Jesus wants us to live, a selfless life when we say no to ourselves.
0: In Mark chapter 10, Peter asked Jesus, we've left everything to follow you. Meaning, what are we going to get out of this? And Jesus answered him, he said, nobody's left houses, wives,
1: family members, but that they'll receive it a hundredfold in this life and in the next life. What God wants disciples to enjoy who think they're giving something up is that they're only gaining, not only in the next life, but in this life as well.
0: I remember when this verse became so real to me because Jesus said houses, 100 houses.
1: When I I first proposed to my wife, she knew I was headed for full-time ministry, and I only thought it was important to warn her that, uh, you know, in full-time ministry, we, we, we may not get paid much. God may call us to a place where we don't make a lot of money. I can't guarantee you that I'll ever even be able to own a home. That didn't bother her. Uh, But we, in God's grace and time, we were able to be good stewards, I hope, and save up, and we bought our first home. And uh, then, by God's grace and blessing, a family was very kind to us, and we live in a home twice the size that I never would have been able to afford on my own. And I I read this verse, and I say, here's a home that uh, I never would have envisioned that God has given us when I was willing to give up for Him. Then a few summers ago, when I wanted to do some writing, took some time off, and and word got around that I was looking for a place to write. I had offers from all over the country. Come stay in this home. Come stay in this home. No shortage of places to stay. And again, I was reminded of this verse.
0: We don't give up anything for God. Disciples need to be taught God always outgives. A selfless disciple, we we have the opportunity
1: here to teach the truths of, of living in the Spirit instead of living according to the flesh in Galatians chapter 5, for example. And then a fourth characteristic, the characteristic of suffering. God wants suffering disciples or disciples who are willing to suffer, to commit themselves to Jesus in spite of persecution that it might bring. Again, in
0: 9.23, he says, take up my cross and follow me. And later he says, daily, Jesus knowing that he will die on the cross, says this is going to be the
1: pattern for disciples of mine who follow. They will suffer likewise, so bring your own cross. Bring your own bullet. Bring your own cyanide. You're going to suffer if you follow me. Eventually, it is a promise in John chapter 15, that if the world hates you, hates me, it will hate you also. But there's a promise with that, a motivating reward, that those who
0: suffer will be blessed. Those who suffer will have great significance and rewards in the kingdom of God.
1: Another characteristic I think Jesus spoke of was submission, submissiveness. He wants his disciples to submissively follow him, and that's, he says, deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me. He wants them to follow in a new purpose in life that we spoke of yesterday. Uh, what was Jesus' purpose in life? Well, we could say there were many, but, you know, when, when he spoke, he said, I have come to seek and to save that which was
0: lost. I've come to preach the gospel, he said. We teach them to follow and aim in that direction. To have a purpose in life, something to live for, something to die for. Not just busyness, but directed activity. Motion is not direction. I heard of this little uh, gadget called an executive box. It's a black box with
1: a switch on the outside. It's for uh, big CEOs of big companies.
0: And you, you flip the switch, and a little hand comes out of the box and flips the switch back off. Motion is not direction. I guess even big executives need to be reminded sometimes that all that they do and all the money that
1: they make might not amount to hilla beans in the eternal significance of things. But people can be given an idea that their life is significant, that they can have fruit that remains, that they can make a difference in eternity, that they can win people to Jesus Christ and change their perspective on how they view their job
0: or their place in life or in the neighborhood or in the classroom. Disciples can be given a vision for reaching the world through reproduction multiplication, investing their lives in others to learn
1: to see their place as a mission field. Jesus said, come. He said to fishermen, come, I'll make you fishers of men. But I think if he said it to nurses, he would have said, come and I'll show you how to heal bodies and souls. If he said it to carpenters, he might have said, I'll show you how to put people on a solid foundation. If he was calling electricians, he might have said, I'll show you how to wire people for kingdom voltage.
0: but he wants everybody to feel significant in his purpose, and that comes through winning people to him.
1: So this is a good opportunity to teach people how to win people to Christ, teach them to list, make a list, to pray for that list, to learn how to share the
0: gospel, learn how to build bridges to people, to learn how to converse with people, learn how to reap the results of their efforts. What's the reward? The reward is in itself a life of purpose.
1: They'll realize they have the highest purpose that their life can realize, to glorify God by introducing people to him. God wants his disciples to be generous, would be a sixth characteristic. He wants disciples to learn to surrender their possessions to him and be good stewards of all that they have. A lot is said in the Bible, especially through parables about stewardship and the faithfulness that it requires. It's hard to be a disciple without being a good steward. I don't know how that's ever going to be accomplished. Discipleship might
0: just be measured by what we see in a checkbook. Here's a good opportunity to teach a disciple about the disciplines of giving.
1: Regular, committed giving, good stewardship. Teach them about, one of the first questions you're going to get from a disciple is, okay, well, how much should I give?
0: Teach them about grace giving. Lifestyle choices. The Bible has many rewards and promises and
1: blessings for those who give generously. Many things that they will enjoy, an abundance of this life and eternal treasure in the life to come. And then a seventh characteristic I see when Jesus talks about following is serving. He wants disciples who are serving. God wants disciples who will show their love for him by loving others and serving their needs. We can't hardly separate the two. You love me with all your heart, mind, and soul, and strength, and then you go and love others as well. If we're going to do that effectively, if we're going to love other people effectively, then they, we need to teach those disciples to be proficient in his word, God's word. We need to teach them to be proficient in exercising their spiritual gifts. So what are your spiritual gifts? At some point, that would have to be addressed.
0: How do you minister in the power of the Holy Spirit? How do you put others first?
1: And what is the motivation, the judgment seat of Jesus Christ, where we give an account for every deed done in the body? In fact, in that prominent passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, we see the judgment seat of Christ mentioned, I believe, in a context of ministering to others. And those who minister with worthy motives and worthy deeds will receive the gold
0: and silver and precious stones. But a truly happy life, they will learn, is one that serves others. Just a couple of weeks ago, uh, my 18-year-old daughter decided to watch a movie and so
1: clicked on the satellite and clicked on a movie. Now, usually we have a discussion about this and she clears it with me, but she got a little impulsive that night. And she clicked on a movie. What are you watching? Well, it's a movie called About a
0: Boy. It's only PG-13, Dad. You know how that goes. Yeah, okay. We'll see about that. So uh, the movie's starting.
1: She gets a phone call. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah, I'll go meet you. She's out. I said, wait a minute. You just paid for a movie. I just paid for a movie. <laughs> and and uh, those who know me know that I'm, I'm tight enough to get change from a penny. So. Now i got to sit here and watch this movie to get my money's worth out of it. Mm-hmm. I don't even like Hugh Grant. don't like the character as a person. Mm-hmm. I'm afraid it would spoil the movie. I watched this movie. I'm not going to ask you if you've seen it. Listen, it's got some rough language in it, and, and, but it doesn't, it doesn't have a lot of sexual stuff in it, but it's got a, some rough language in it. I watched this movie, but you know what? It ended up delightfully surprising me. It's about a man so self-absorbed with, with his own life relationships come and go. He doesn't care. He blows them off. He doesn't do anything but what he wants to do. He's financially independent. He doesn't have to work even. And a the little boy gets introduced into his life. The little boy has problems. He tries to shut him out. Eventually, he makes friends with him. But not good enough. The boy's mother has problems. Eventually, he reaches a point where he either has to get involved or just blow them all off. He gets involved with the boy's mother, and, and it changes his life. And he realizes how empty and hollow he was until he learned
0: to serve the needs of other people. If you can get an edited version, I recommend it to you. Otherwise, use your discretion and Christian liberty in love. But I was delightfully surprised by that particular movie.
1: Disciples need to, be, to learn to invest their lives in others and to serve others, and that's where true happiness comes from. I remember ministering in a nursing home. I'd, I'd visit an elderly lady there. Uh, every week, and every time I go, there would be a woman who was there feeding the other um, uh, people in the nursing home. Uh, no matter what time of day, she would seem to be there. And I, I said, uh, finally, I, I just said, Oh, you work here? No, I volunteer. Oh, you come once a week? Because I always came on the same day. No, I come every day. You come every day? Yeah, three, days, three times a day I come, help them with breakfast, lunch,
0: and dinner. But she just exuded a happiness about her that made me envious. She had learned the secret of serving. My friends, this,
1: I hope, is maybe just a good start on a model for discipleship and an approach. It's something that made sense to me. It might be a good foundation to build on. It's one approach. It's certainly not the only one. It's not inspired. It's not perfect. But any approach to discipleship, I will say, is going to have to emphasize the grace of God. And when it does, people will respond. And they'll have a motivation to continue after you give them the certificate. be sure that the grace of God is incorporated consistently throughout. There's no course, no material, no method that finishes the job of discipleship. What this pastor began in my life so many years ago is continuing today, not through a curricula so much as it is through life experiences and what others teach me.
0: But it will go on and on and on. But we got to start somewhere. And it really doesn't matter how you do it. Just do it. Let's have a word of prayer, and then I'll have just a couple minutes for questions.
1: Our Father, what a daunting task this is to disciple those who know nothing, to disciple those who think they know something, to disciple those who just need the grace of God lived out in their lives. And I just pray, Father, that you would help us to take what we know and have learned
0: and to pass that on to others. In Jesus' name, amen.